Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. A new National Parks app for your smartphone, creative lodging options in some national parks in Canada, and George McJunkin, who was born a slave but matured into one of the West's most remarkable cowboys, were among the stories we brought our readers last week. We also offered an in-depth piece on the history behind Chesapeake and Ohio Canal National Historical Park, looked at the more than $6 million in benefits the Grand Teton National Park Foundation brought to Grand Teton National Park, and let you know that you'll be able to hike or bike around Cades Cove in Great Smoky Mountains National Park this summer on Wednesdays without worrying about vehicle traffic. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we sit down with Yellowstone National Park Superintendent Cam Shawley to discuss how his park weathered last year's COVID storm. And we bring you up to speed on a proposal to drill for oil in Big Cypress National Preserve. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. There probably wasn't anyone working for the National Park Service last year who had an easy year. What with the closings of parks and the openings of the parks, the need to obtain personal protective equipment and repetitive sanitizing throughout the summer and into the fall. At Yellowstone National Park, things were a tad more tricky at times. Not only did they have to cope with less staff in the face of near normal visitation during the COVID pandemic, but the overpass at the Old Faithful intersection was out of operation for a while due to some issues. And then there was this small matter of a tanker truck carrying gasoline overturning between Mud Volcano and Fishing Bridge Junction. To take a look back at last year and take a peek forward at the coming summer season in Yellowstone, we've invited Superintendent Cam Shawley to join us. Welcome to The Traveler, Cam. Thank you, Kurt. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm glad we could catch up. So did did I overlook anything in that short uh, synopsis of your year? No. Uh, you know, 2020 was probably one of the most challenging years that most of us have ever faced. You know, first and foremost, I think I, I can't say enough about the team and partners here in Yellowstone who really did a, an amazing job 
and tackled many challenges and I really commend them for their performance in one of our, you know, toughest periods in history. And, um, you know, I think as, I don't know how to rate success in a COVID year. I don't think anyone really does, but I think given the massive divergence of opinions, uh, and a lot of pressure from a lot of different entities and people, I think we did about as best as, as we could here in the park overall, I'd call it a success. Well, it was just it was just crazy. I mean, between the the delayed openings and then you know how many staff you could have on, and then how you had to handle the staff, and like you said, the pressure I'm sure from uh, lodging and and other concessionaires in the park as well as the, the gateway communities. Yeah, I mean, I think probably you know first of all when we got the letters from Governor Bullock and Governor Gordon in March asking us to close, I, you know, there was consensus across all three states, five counties, all of the gateway communities uh, supporting that closure. And I had hoped that we would, you know, gain the same consensus around reopening as we did around closing, but that that wasn't necessarily the case. I mean, there were there were a lot of differences in opinion in public health and um, the general public. And, uh, you know, we did the best that we could to kind of strike a balance between Wyoming, which at that point, you know, Park County, Wyoming had one case, you know, Teton County hadn't blown up. Cases were worse in Gallatin County, Montana, Park County, Montana were creeping up. So Montana governor wanted to stay closed a little bit longer. Wyoming governor wanted to open. Obviously the businesses that rely on the park economically uh, were really stressed, wanted to open. And so we came up with a you know a plan to open the Wyoming gates a couple of weeks before the Montana gates to give Montana a little more time. Uh, we did that with the consensus of the governors. We had good support, and you know in, in hindsight that worked out pretty well considering that first uh, the last two weeks of May, the first two weeks we opened, you know we were about 22 percent of of what we would normally see in visitation, and it gave the team some some time to warm up test out some of the mitigation that we put in place. And, uh, and then we opened Montana gates in uh, early June and we're, we're, we're wide open. June stayed relatively slow for the first few weeks. Uh, we were about 50% of normal visitation in mid June. Starting in early July, the vehicle entry numbers uh, overtook the 2019 day by day numbers and never, never looked back. And then August, as you know, second busiest in history in September and October, the first busiest. So it got a lot busier about mid-July through the fall. And uh, like I said, you know, the team and partners here did a, a terrific job. I think we we did some things right. I think there's some good lessons learned uh, as we continue to progress. And 21, I'm sure, will be a challenging year, just like 20. It may be even more challenging, I'm not sure. But uh Overall, I think we came out of 2020 about as good as we could have. What What is your normal summer staffing and what did you work with last year? So, you know, we run usually around 350 to 400 permanent employees, year-round employees. And then we hire, you know, four to 500 seasonals. Normally, we're able to put, you know, if we have a three-bedroom house, we can put three seasonals in that house. Or if we have a you know, a two bedroom apartment, we can put two seasonals in that apartment. 
we didn't want to do that last year for obvious reasons. But if an employee got sick, we wanted to have a place for them to quarantine and isolate. Um, so that that was really the driving factor behind the lower staffing numbers. The choices we made and who we brought on were largely based on what we need to manage visitation and run the operation. So we kind of divided our hiring for seasonals. Uh, first of all, found out how many beds do we have based on a criteria that would basically put one employee per housing unit. Like I said, good news is we could isolate a person if they became sick. Bad news is it severely constrained our staffing levels. And so, you know, a lot of the folks that we would normally hire, you know, didn't get hired. And some of that's, you know, youth education program, seasonals, uh, some of our seasonals in the Yellowstone Center for Resources. We didn't hire a lot of the campground rangers. We kept the campgrounds closed until August 25th. And we tried to kind of alter our operation to the best. We didn't open visitor centers, for instance. And so we probably worked with about half of the normal seasonal workforce to answer your question directly. So is that something that you can get by with on a, on a normal year? I mean, did it, did it have some economies of scale or did you have to regretfully um, do away with some programming? Well, I think there's, you know, like I said, we would normally have YCC groups, Expedition Yellowstone education groups. Um, you know, we'd have a lot of more staffing in visitor centers. We would have had more staffing to clean visitor centers. There's So there's kind of a trickle-down effect there. And so simply because of COVID, obviously, we weren't bringing a lot of youth into the park for if I did stay on the education topic. And so that, you know, that was not a good thing, but we, that staff wouldn't have had any, any youth to work with anyway. So we're trying to make decisions like in this year, if we're going to, are we going to be able to run education programs? What type of staff is necessary? Um, but we really did focus on trying to make sure that we had the right staff for the, the visitation that was coming in. Now, we did not expect visitation to be as high as it was, especially in, in August, September, and October. Yeah, it was kind of phenomenal. Yeah, it was. And it was a big stressor on the, on the operation. Uh, so we're kind of looking at it this year about same thing. You know, what do we open? Uh, what can we handle? Where do we have vulnerabilities that we want to make sure we address? Where can we get away with maybe not hiring some seasonals uh, again this year? What work won't get done? What kind of impacts will that have? And uh, as you know, there's a lot of programs in a variety of different divisions here in the park. And uh, everybody does a phenomenal job. Everybody plays an important role. Uh, but there's some trade-offs that we're facing again going into 21. And, um, you know, we're working through that right now. Do, do you have any... Um idea whether your your lodges will be fully open or is it too early to say well keep in mind we didn't open we opened 50 percent of the lodging in the park last year so we were never fully wide open right um last year you know we we didn't open park service campgrounds until august 25th we never opened a visitor center still haven't you know so we had a lot of day use in the park uh, we're working with the concessioners right now i mean no one's got a crystal ball uh, so I would suggest, you know, we didn't have any accommodations open the first month of, of last year that we opened. And then we slowly, we agreed with the concessioners and with our business partners that we would start conservatively 
and cautiously and then expand operations it was if it was safe to do so so we never got the full wide open uh, but i i think what we've agreed on and we don't know where we'll be in may is that generally speaking we're going to still be very conservative going into the summer we've learned a lot from last year and you know we probably don't need to start off right at where we started off you know last last may we can probably start somewhere around where we left off in the fall um, but we, we we need to map that out and figure out what that looks like and that could change i mean we could see you know um substantial differences in caseload i mean teton county right now in wyoming's got a, a very substantial positivity rate and that's gone up and down in various counties around the park we use that as a a way of measuring kind of what what our posture needs to be in the park in, in certain areas and we don't know where we're going to be in May. So we're going to create a plan that we think is is reasonable and safe and flexible. Mm-hmm. D- does any of the park staff, the staff that deals with the general public, do they get uh, preference in, in vaccinations? Well, we've we've uh, we've got a, a, a you know, I think I have to look at the numbers. We've in partnership with Park County, Montana and state. Uh, we've gotten a lot of our first responders, our paramedics, firefighters, law enforcement uh, vaccinated. You know, we're, we're each state's got kind of its own. I mean, you've got the national criteria, and then you states have some flexibility. We're we're aiming for once we get that first wave vaccinated of, of first responders and people like that, that we really start focusing on those folk, those those employees that are in the public interface, whether that's park service, whether that's concessioners or others um, also being cognizant that you know we don't want to take away vaccinations from other categories that that are in line first and sure. so we've had good conversations with public health with the states and um, you know we're, we're moving forward and, and like I said I think we've got over a hundred uh, employees vaccinated at this point yeah yeah with um the, the the crush and visitation, if you will, towards the end of the summer. I mean, August was uh, phenomenal, and I think it it carried on a little bit in September. Did you have any problems with um, with the visitors? I mean, obviously, you didn't have full staff to be out there, or maybe you did. Well, we we had a, a really interesting visitor demographic this year. You know, I don't I don't know if it was people, and Yeltsin wasn't was wasn't alone here. I don't know if it was people that didn't normal, normally travel to national parks. Um, if it was, you know, the fact that we didn't have the accommodations open, but we saw a lot of, you know, violations that were above and beyond normal. Mm-hmm. Um, as you've probably seen, you know, we had a higher level of thermal trespass cases uh, in the park. Very few of those actually resulted in any damage per se, but there were a lot more citations issued. Uh, we issued a lot more citations for illegal camping uh people would show up that park you know campgrounds are closed so they would they would camp wherever uh we also you know i asked the enforcement rangers to take a more aggressive posture in relationship to enforcement and so whereas you might have a year where more verbal warnings or written warnings were written to visitors we were we were pretty strict this year there's some you know there's some things for some nuance people should understand in regards to the thermal uh, trespassing, you know, Boiling River, which is just down the road here from Mammoth, 
is a really popular swimming spot in the Gardner River. On a normal year, that's open, and it's 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 uh, you know it's the river fed by thermal uh, heated water, and it's very popular. We kept that closed for public health reasons all year last year. And so 59 of the 120 thermal trespass cases were people entering that closure and swimming in the river that would normally be open. Mm-hmm. It was closed last year. So those got categorized as thermal trespasses. Uh, on a normal year, we had 50 to 60. Uh, there were some areas that were damaged, but there was not substantial damage. But that's an area that we're focused on this year from a prevention standpoint. Because the visitor centers were closed also last year, we had more of that staff that would have been in the visitor center outside. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot more uh, park service team looking for violations. Uh, they did a very, very good job. They also contacted almost a million people outside, uh, oh. which was which was interesting. You know, we, we set up out, outdoor kind of mobile visitor centers and um, they ended up making a lot of contacts that way. and. You know, we're always going to keep the bigger visitor centers open downstream. Sorry, I didn't but, quite um, catch that. Could you please repeat it? Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but that that worked out pretty well for us as far as uh, still being able to engage the public and educate people and that kind of thing. You know, I was talking to one of your colleagues, uh, Craig Ackerman, over at uh, Crater Lake um, this past fall, and he said much the same in terms of the visitation, it seemed like, you know, they were seeing a lot of people who wouldn't normally go to a national park. And so they weren't really familiar with how to behave in a national park, if you want to put it that way. And they had a lot of, a lot of interesting violations and people doing things they shouldn't do. Yeah, no question. And I, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of my counterparts and they saw a lot of the same thing. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if that was an anomaly or, you know, that might be the trend again this year. Uh, but we'll we'll continue to and that, you know that does that's a good piece of history there for us from the standpoint of planning for the future in relationship to where we saw violations what type of violations did we see where do we need to be more uh, focused and uh, we're taking that into consideration moving into 21. We've been talking with Yellowstone National Park Superintendent Cam Shawley about how last year's COVID situation affected Yellowstone and how the park staff dealt with it. Make sure to tune in to next week's podcast to hear about what plans are in store for the future of Yellowstone. But up next, after the break, we have an in-depth look at Big Cypress Drilling. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. 
It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Big Cypress became the country's first national preserve back in the fall of 1974. It was added to the national park system to protect roughly 720,000 acres that covers a unique ecosystem with rare woodpeckers that live in family groups and a subspecies of panther, which has been listed as an endangered species for more than five decades, that has tenaciously survived despite the steady urbanization of Florida. More than 30 species of orchids grow in Big Cypress. Perhaps most notable among them is the ghost orchid that snakes its roots around the trunk of its host tree, anchoring its beautiful flowers. And there's the Everglades dwarf siren, a curious, bushy-gilled salamander that can grow up to 10 inches long. Wood storks and endangered species live in Big Cypress, as do the red-cockaded woodpecker, an endangered species, the Everglades snail kite, another endangered species, the eastern indigo snake, a threatened species, and the American alligator, which is also threatened. The preserve also provides important habitat to numerous other rare and federally endangered species of plants, birds, bats, and butterflies. The state of Florida, meanwhile, lists nearly 70 plant species within Big Cypress as endangered. And if you include threatened species, the state's tally reaches 100 for the preserve. And the preserve is also home to oil and companies want to profit from that oil. To bring you up to speed, the Collier family owns a large amount of the mineral rights lying underneath the surface of Big Cypress National Preserve, and for decades has tried to profit from them, either by developing the minerals or by having the federal government buy them out. There was an attempt back in the 1990s where Congress was asked to pay $120 million for those mineral rights, but there was concern over how that valuation was reached and whether it was fair, and the proposal was dropped. Come forward to present day, and the Collier family wants to drill for oil in the preserve. In 2017, and again in 2018, the Burnett Oil Company conducted field surveys to determine whether there were worthwhile oil deposits that could be tapped beneath Big Cypress. While the company hasn't publicly said what that field work determined, late last month it applied for necessary clean water permits from the state of Florida, as well as the necessary permits from the National Park Service to begin drilling. To understand the latest developments, we've invited Allison Kelly, who is a senior lands attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council, to join us. Kelly is well familiar with the Everglades in Big Cypress, as before she came to NRDC, she worked for the Florida Department of Environmental Protection 
in the Regulatory Enforcement Division. Welcome, Allison. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So where exactly do things stand? I mean, I, I think I read someplace that the Park Service has either 60 or 90 days to, to respond to um, Burnett Oil's request for permits. So right now, the permits are the state Section 404 Clean Water Act permits filed with the state of Florida under their newly assumed program. Previously, they would have had to apply to the Army Corps of Engineers, but earlier this year, Florida applied for and received permission to do that permitting. So that's where the permits lie. They're for wetland impacts for oil pads for the wells and roads to accommodate the drilling in two separate locations in Big Cypress National Preserve. I actually checked this morning and there's still no um, access permit posted on the National Park Service's uh, public website. So as of right now, anyway, um, I think the Park Service is aware of the proposal and is reviewing it, but they have not released any National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA documents for public consumption yet. Yeah, we'll get into that in a minute. Now, there long has been oil production in other parts of the preserve, uh, such as up at Raccoon Point. Why shouldn't Burnett be allowed to drill in other parts of Big Cypress? So that conventional oil drilling uh, predated creation of the preserve in the 1970s. That's legacy drilling that has been there for a long time um, in discrete areas. What we're talking about now are new areas, not using conventional, but rather unconventional forms of well stimulation, such as horizontal or directional drilling, and potentially well stimulation techniques like fracking or acidizing. So what we're talking about is basically industrializing uh, the first national preserve in the national park system in the middle of the Everglades watershed. So um, we have great concerns, obviously, about this, this expansion. Um, if you recall, in 2017 and 18, the Burnett Oil Company uh, explored for oil using seismic testing, driving 33 ton, what's known as vibrosized vehicles, through wetlands off-road in the preserve. They were looking for new sources of oil in new areas, and that is where one of these wells is proposed today. And I just want to remind folks that the first phase of oil exploration is all we're talking about here, which is about 70,000 acres. When all is said and done, they want to explore through one third of the preserve or 230,000 acres in four phases. So right now we're only dealing with phase one. All four phases put together are larger than some national parks like Shenandoah, Biscayne and Zion. So I just wanted to flag the scale of what we're talking about here. This is just the beginning. Now you, you mentioned the, the old conventional drilling techniques and, and what Burnett's proposing here, the directional or horizontal drilling, doesn't that have less of an impact on the landscape where they would only need, say, one pad to, to sink four or five wells as opposed to having to build individual pads for each of those wells? Well, you still are going to have roads, right? You're still going to have those impacts, the filling of the wetlands. You're going to have wildlife disturbance. You're going to have noise and lighting, right, associated with the drilling operations themselves. Potentially pipelines will have to be constructed to move the oil off the fields for transportation. So it's larger than just pads and roads. It's the operation of the industrial activity as a whole. Additionally, horizontal drilling, when you drill down vertically first, you can go down at least hundreds, if not thousands of feet, and then again, horizontally or directionally in another direction, the same amount of feet. So we have aquifers, 
Big Cypress sits on at least three aquifers, one of which is a sole source aquifer that provides uh, more than 50% drinking water supply to uh, adjacent counties, particularly uh, the Biscayne Aquifer. And there are others that provide drinking water benefits as well. Um, again, you know, wetlands have a hydro period, right? They're, they're connected to groundwater. So we could have impacts there. Um, and so none of that has been fully revealed yet. Those impacts are studied for that matter. So again, we still have concerns about horizontal drilling. Also, if they're going to use well stimulation techniques like acidizing, which I'm not clear that's the case, but if they do, what they'll do is they'll shoot hydrochloric acid mixture down the wells to dissolve the lime rock beneath, which is where the aquifers are housed, to push up the oil. And you know, what stuff comes up with the oil is whatever went down and also, you know, naturally occurring radioactive materials, all sorts of things will come up and then they'll have to deal with what to do with that wastewater. Now, Big Cypress Superintendent Tom Forsyth has told us that the park plans to prepare an environmental assessment on the company's drilling proposal rather than a more intensive environmental impact statement. Is that a big deal? Yes. And we previously asked for an environmental impact statement back when they started the oil exploration plans. And we, again, got an environmental assessment, which led to a finding of no significant impact by the Park Service. Then the operations began. And unfortunately, we were correct. And all of the impacts that we flagged in that review process that they did not fully study were realized, right? We had um, two feet deep in places, soil rutting and wetlands. We had dwarf cypress trees, which are the cornerstone of big cypress that can range anywhere from 30 to 2,500 years of age. We had those run over and cut and destroyed. Uh, the, the amount of impacts goes on. Here, similarly, we, we fear that those types of impacts, including the impacts I just mentioned associated with drilling in particular, and climate change for that matter, will not be considered in an environmental assessment. What they often do is tier or incorporate by reference another environmental impact statement done for the management plan for the preserve. In this case, the management plan is from 1991. So it's 30 years old. So conditions in the preserve have, cha have changed since then, right? Now we have sea level rise, climate change. We have more people. I think in 2015 or 2016, before the seismic testing started, we had over 1 million visitors to Big Cypress National Preserve. I think when the plan was done, there was something around 100,000. Hmm. So we have extremely different conditions than we had in 1991, which is the last time they did a full-scale uh, EIS for the preserve. So we think, obviously, that an update is warranted 30 years later. Things have changed. <laughs> now, I wonder if another question should be considered, that of whether this project is in the country's best interests. Climate change, as we all know, is a growing issue. The Biden administration has pledged to have the country preserve 30% of its lands and waters for nature by 2030. And really, Florida isn't that big of an oil producer. Are those questions that should be considered by the Park Service? Absolutely. Um, Florida has two oil producing regions. Uh, most people don't realize one is in the Florida Panhandle on the Alabama border. That part of Florida produces three quarters of the oil in Florida. The Everglades only produces about a quarter of that. And even then, Florida only contributes about 0.1% of the nation's crude oil reserves. And so we're talking about 3,000 
barrels per day in Florida. Compare that to Texas, which is the number one crude oil producer. It produces 4.6 million barrels per day. Meanwhile, we're spending billions with a B on Everglades restoration. We're combating sea level rise and climate change. This is not the place to industrialize at this time. Not to mention the wells are being proposed for a 30 year duration. So here we are, we have all these climate change initiatives. We have all the sea level rise adaptation and Everglades restoration projects going on. And we're going to add an industrial park to the middle. You know, Big Cypress provides about 40% of water to Everglades National Park. I wanna flag that as well. So this, this is not a good idea. This is inconsistent with all of the planning efforts I just mentioned. Um, and is absolutely not worth the price of admission for Florida. Because I'll tell you, at least for the exploration, Burnett Oil Company is a Texas company and they brought their workers with them and their equipment with them from Texas. This is not a situation where you have a large industry or a large, a large job creator in Florida. Yeah. As you mentioned, um, Big Cypress sends uh, a lot of water down to Everglades National Park. That water, of course, starts upstream in central Florida at Lake Okeechobee. It's that river of grass that is famous that created the Everglades. Is it reasonable to assume that if there was some sort of uh, industrial accident in Big Cypress that that waste could get flushed down into Everglades and then into Florida Bay? As we know in Florida, all water is connected, right? And the Native Americans will tell you water is life. And there is a, a possibility for transmissivity through the aquifers. If there's a spill, if the casing of the, around the drill, drilling bits are inadequate. A pipeline spill, if they plan to take the oil out through a pipeline, pipelines leak and spill. So I do think that there is cause for concern with that. We haven't seen fully what their plans are to deal with that. But we do have outstanding Freedom of Information Act requests that have been pending with the Park Service for several years and haven't been fulfilled where we've asked those questions for um, existing conventional facilities. And we'd like to know how that's being managed even now. Yeah. Now, under the preserves enabling legislation, um, there's a section in there, if you read some of the fine print, that gives the Interior Secretary the the authority, basically, to stop the drilling project to acquire the mineral rights in one form or fashion if he or she determines that drilling for oil is not in the best interest of the preserve's landscape or its flora or fauna. Any idea if that section could come into play? It should. Again, as you say, the Park Service has broad authority to limit oil and gas exploration and development that conflicts with other resources in the preserve. And it certainly does here. You know, Big Cypress was created for the enjoyment of the scenery, natural and archaeological, cultural objects and wildlife in a manner that will leave them unimpaired for future generations. And so I think the Park Service has to understand it's a steward of these resources. Yes, there is oil and gas beneath, but we also have the surface and the reason why the preserve was established as the first national preserve in the Park Service system for a reason. Um, there is also supposed to be a 10% area of limitation. So oil and gas operations are not supposed to exceed 10% at any one time. And so we need to make sure at a very minimum, at a floor, that that is, is what is adhered to. But again, I think if the Park Service deemed 
as we had, as we believe that this is um, certainly going to impair future generations and preserve resources in the long term, that they should look at acquiring or trading for the mineral rights in this situation and and go to Congress as they they can under statute and request that this evaluation be done. Now, in the in the past, in the recent past, uh, Florida's governor has um, purchased some oil oil rights outside of the preserve. Is that something that uh, they could entertain inside the preserve since they're privately owned mineral rights? Certainly, state of Florida could work with the federal government to have these mineral rights evaluated and potentially purchased. We've actually written to the governor since he um, purchased those lands uh, in the water conservation areas in Broward County that you referred to. We've actually written to him, asked him to take a look at the mineral rights in Big Cypress, but we haven't received a response. We've been talking today with Allison Kelly, a senior lands attorney with the Natural Resource Defense Council. Uh, before she went to that job, she actually worked for the state of Florida, the Department of Environmental Protection in Regulatory Enforcement. Allison, thanks so much for your insights today, and it'll be interesting to see um, how the Park Service in the state of Florida handles this uh, process going forward. Great. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with Cam Shawley to explore not only the infrastructure needs at Yellowstone, but also the conservation of natural resources that the park has been working on, including the removal of lake trout from Yellowstone Lake. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.